Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. He started his cat-themed coffee house almost 10 years ago, and now a rare paleo-Indian site has been found in his backyard. We're back at two Razzling cats in East Haddam as the archaeological digging continues. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Mark Thede is the owner of a cat-themed coffee house in the idyllic town of East Haddam. It's served quality food and drink for almost 10 years now, and a couple of years ago something very strange occurred. While a customer of his was drinking coffee in the garden, he spotted something in the ground that you or I wouldn't have given a second glance to. But it turned out the small fragment was part of something larger, a paleo-Indian site going back thousands of years that would be uncovered at the coffee house. We went back to two Razzling Cats recently as the state archaeologist and a team of volunteers were beginning a new set of digs at the site to see what else they might find. I'm Scott Brady. And Scott advised the listeners, so you are part of the Friends of the Office of the State Archaeology, if I've got that right. Sure, yeah. They're, um, the state archaeologist is basically a one-person office, and you can't do archaeology with one person. So there was a Friends group created back in 1997, and we provide the volunteer support to the archaeologists when they're out in the field and they need assistance. And where's your interest in archaeology come from? You know, I uh, remember as a kid, right, you read about the Egyptian archaeologist and stuff and and then I went off and I had a career and when I retired as my friend said I was doing all my nerd things like harmonica lessons and weird stuff and I took a one-week field school for adults in archaeology where the mentors were uh, from the friends of the office of state archaeology and uh, they hooked me I got hooked and, and I've been active in the organization ever since. Now, today we are at the site of two Raslin Cats uh, Coffee House in East Haddam and a very interesting paleo-Indian site. What can you tell us? Because there's a lot of volunteers, a lot of activity going on. Right, yeah. So we're out here. We've been here before. Last session that we were here, last day, last pit that we dug, last level in it, we found a channel flake. And it's a very diagnostic kind of a, a chipping debris from the making of points that paleo people pretty much exclusively made so you know we're back out here to try and kind of track that down see if we have any more evidence of that paleo activity because those are the really the first people to you know to be in what we now call connecticut And the interesting thing about this, as I understand it, is these sites are quite rare because often they can get washed away or they can get dug up because the sorts of things that we're talking about, it's not like big pieces of pottery. I mean, we're talking about much smaller pieces. Right. So uh, most of what we're going to find here is the debris from making a stone point, a stone tool, whether it be a, a spearhead or a knife. And if you think about that, for every tool you make, there might be hundreds of little tiny chips that you have to take off to get the right shape and the right sharpness. And then you don't leave the tool behind, right? You spend all that time and effort, so the tool leaves with you. 
So a lot of what we're going to find is very small pieces. But going back to what you initially said, yeah, these sites are rare because they are by waterways. And we all know that over thousands of years, rivers and streams meander and they erode portions and then they deposit soils in different places. So when we find a site like here by this waterway where we have that material, it's pretty important. And also how exciting is it as well? Because, you know, we live in this age where not a lot seems to excite us these days. You know, we've got our phones and not much, you know, makes us go wow. But this, this seems pretty exciting. Yeah, you know, for me personally, look, I love to go to a museum. I love to see artifacts or displays or, you know, hear the stories of history and prehistory and the people that were here indigenously before Europeans arrived. But to be the first person to see something and hold something that a human being left behind, you know, whether it's 50 years ago or 10,000 years ago, there's a certain magic in that for me still. Well, thank you ever so much for your time. I'm going to let you get back because sure. I know there's a lot of work being done. So thank you for talking to us. Sarah Sportman, Office of the Archaeologist for the State of Connecticut. We're in amongst all the volunteers here. I'll let you come through and then we can bring you over here. So it's like buzzing with activity here at the Two Razzlin Cats Coffee House uh, location in East Haddam. Just before we go into it about, you know, what you're hoping to find or what you have found already, just remind listeners, Paleo-Indian, you know, what's that time period? So here in the northeast, the Paleo-Indian period is about 13,000 to about 10,000 years ago. Explain to us, you were here, I believe, last year, 2021, found some uh, materials. So talk us through that as a little, little timeline. So we actually started the project in 2020, so this is our third year back here. There was an initial find on the surface of an artifact that looked like it had the potential to be from a very early period. So Mark Clymer, who's here, was the, the gentleman who found it, and he reached out to our office to see if we'd be interested in starting a research project. And that's how it started. So we've been here. This is our fourth um, excavation here. Now, you're going to be here for two days. What else do you hope you may find? Well, last year we found some... Initially, we had just stone tool-making debris, so the stone chips that are knocked off when someone is shaping a tool. Last year, we finally found evidence of projectile points. We actually found some point fragments, and one of them is a fluted point fragment, which dates conclusively to the Paleo-Indian period. So we're hoping to find more conclusive evidence of that time period, because in New England... um, You know, this is a landscape that's been occupied for over 12,000 years. Most of the sites we find are multi-component, meaning that people have lived in the same spots repeatedly over thousands of years. So sometimes it can be tricky to tease out the um, timeline of which material goes with which time period. And does it help to build a picture of, you know, the, the movement of these people as well, you know, just obviously across Connecticut? It does, um, because, you know, when we find these sites, first of all, we're getting a sense of the places on the landscape where people were interested in living, right? And this is a great location. It's near a brook. Um, You have all the resources that you would need. But we're also getting a sense of the types of materials that people use. And the stone tool-making materials themselves give us a sense of people's movement on the landscape. Because here we're finding material that's local, found in this area, but also material that's from New York. So that requires either trade or travel to get that material. So it's giving us a sense of what people were doing. And how rare is it to find like a site like this that seems to be relatively intact as well? Yeah, Paleo-Indian sites are fairly rare, and part of it is because of their extreme age um, and because so much activity has occurred on the landscape since they were here, right? Um, so 
finding intact sites is really, you know, unique because um, there's just not a lot of them that have been found to date. I think there are a lot more of them out there than people realize, um, but you have to look to find them. So it's rare, but it's not that rare, I guess, if that makes any sense. And and also, I mean, sort of the significance as well. I mean, so like how, how significant is this, uh, you know, this particular site, I suppose? It is. It's very significant. Anytime we find um, sites from the earliest time periods, it's significant because it's still a time period about which, you know, we don't know a whole lot. We're trying to piece it together. After 12,000 years, you don't have a lot of the material that people used that preserved, right? So we're mostly left with stone tools and other materials that are very durable that will last through time, right? People in the past certainly made things out of skin. They made things out of wood. They made things out of bone. But that stuff rarely lasts this long. So, you know, we have to cobble together the information we have based on what's left, and the more sites we find, the better um, the opportunity is to get an understanding of what was going on. And and final question to you. I know that uh, we're specifically talking about Paleo-Indian, but, I mean, we're on a site that's got a property that, you know, is of significant age. What other things are you possibly going to find as well? Because it's like a layer cake, I'm guessing. You're going to find all sorts of things from different periods. Exactly. Um, So this is an 18th century structure. There was a mill site along this brook, right up the brook here. Um, And we are finding materials from the historic period, from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. So we've got ceramics, glass, nails, coal fragments from from the heating coal that people would have used to keep warm. All the things that you would find associated with an historic house are also here. We think there may also be another Native American component from a later period here, possibly from the Middle Woodland period. So, you know, that's about a little more than a thousand years ago, but still, you know, of a significant age. So we're hoping to get more information and more diagnostic artifacts that can help us kind of separate out those components and figure out the um, occupation history of the property. So, Mark, you're responsible for all of this in the nicest kind of way. Explain how it all started. Well, I usually come up here, uh, my office is down the road, so I come up here on the afternoon sometimes for coffee and a nice day. I'll sit by the pond here. And um, having grown up in central New York, and uh, I do have a degree in archaeology way back when, before I became an engineer, so uh, I guess I was an informed idiot, so I was standing (laughs) or sitting by the fountain with my coffee, and I noticed something shiny laying in the dirt where they put a line in at some point. So I'm looking at it and I'm saying, boy, that looks familiar. No, it can't be. can't be. So I drink my coffee and said, I'm going to pick this up. So I pick it up, and it's a flint. It's called Norman Scale Flint, not native to this area, and it's a tool from uh, uh, New York. The material is from Norman Scale, New York, and that's typical Paleo-Indian and I've been working on some Paleo-Indian sites in central New York as a hobby. And so I uh, <clears throat> decided to take some test pits. And Mark Thede nicely said, sure, go dig. So I dug a few what they call STP test pits around the, the fountain. I started finding more and more Norman skill material. And I said, wow, this is a site. So having, knowing the state archaeologists uh, got in touch and said, well, come on out and take a look at this. So the rest is history. So these, these great people came out, and we've been digging about six times now. So that's, that's the way it started. Just give the listeners a sense of this item that you found. I mean, we're talking small stuff here. You've got yeah. obviously an eagle eye. 
Um, you wouldn't think so, but... <laughs> Um, yeah, it, after years of walking fields, you get an eye for shape and for color. This was about an inch long, and um, it had a point on it. And I could see a little bit of workmanship on it, and that's what caught my eye and say, this is typical of these people who were here 10,000 years ago. So was this just an accident, or is it actually a site here? So the thought processes went on from there. And as I said before, I started digging some test pits around here and uh, finding more of this same kind of flint, although no projectile points or anything really smacks you in the face, but there's enough evidence. It's like NCIS or, you know, little bits of evidence tells you a lot. You say, I mean, you've found over 500 items, though, which is that fairly significant for a site like this? It's very significant. It means that they were sitting here either following migratory herds of caribou resharpening their points or making tools and then moving on with the uh, with the migratory uh, caribou. So, yeah, it, it's, it's very significant. You don't normally find that amount of material in this small an area from that time period. And my understanding is they, they were quite a nomadic sort of like tribe, so, and then they would pick up, you know, good quality materials. You were saying the piece that you found was from New York, so obviously not yeah. to like Connecticut. So that's, I mean, that's fascinating. Yeah, the, these particular people use only the high-quality flint, their uh, chert, and the best material is like, say, Norman Scope from New York or there'd be some stuff from Pennsylvania, and in their migratory travels, I mean, they'll travel 500 miles during a season. They will go to these same quarries and pick up these chunks of flint, carry them with them, and then when, when it's needed, they will sit, say, here, wrestling cats, and start making points and tools or whatever they need. And they'll move on, and then the next season they may come back here or they may move down the swamp a little ways. So it's, it's, it's an interesting story. I'm going to let you get back to your work in just a second. I just want to ask you this one final question. How exciting is this for you? I mean, we're surrounded by a bunch of volunteers, you know, beavering away. We don't know what else is going to be found here. But, I mean, for you personally, how exciting has this all been? This is fantastic. I mean, I love working with these people. It's a passion play here. So we all have a passion for history. And um, you do learn a lot from, from, uh, you know, these are essentially our ancestors from Asia. So, um, yeah, this is really cool. Mark, I'm, as I say, I'm going to let you get back to work, but thank you so much for taking time out to speak to me, and congratulations on starting the all well, of this Thank off. you very much. So we have Mark Thede here, who yeah. is the owner of Two Razzling Cats. Mark, what are they doing to your garden? Well, I think that they're, <laughs> they're trying to find some lost uh, uh, treasures from the, the, the way back when in the Paleo-Indian uh, era. But, uh, you know, the, it, I guess that's pretty much and if they find anything valuable it's mine you know <laughs> now this all started uh, back in 2020 we've spoke to another mark who was the yes. guy who was sat drinking coffee just talk us through that because that yeah. must have been sort of like quite an odd thing when somebody came in and said to you hey i think you've got all of this stuff in your backyard v- very strange yeah mark came in and he had cleaned off the this artifact he said i found this back there he said this thing shouldn't be here you know and he found it just as uh, in an area that we had excavated some uh for our new electrical and so then he said do you, do you mind if i come back and i think uh, you know this could have some significance can i come back and do some digging i said Sure, why not, you know? And he had been doing these excavations up in Upper State, New York, so I thought he was, he was valid. He's actually a great guy. And so then he did these holes during the summer and 
found a whole bunch of stuff, got, the, got his friends involved, and um, the, the rest is just history. So had you not had the electrical done in the backyard, there's a distinct possibility, because that obviously disrupted the earth a bit, there's a distinct possibility this may not be happening. A- absolutely, absolutely. You know, I look at this as all like, that, it struck me, that moment struck me as, um, this is sort of like my purpose. I, I've been everywhere. I grew up in Torrington, Connecticut, but I've been around and around and around, and I ended up at this property, put in a coffee house. Mark decided that he was uh, going to come by and have a coffee, and he found this thing that just happened to be a protruding from the ground at the right time. And it, I don't even want to think back on how uh, improbable that sort of thing is, but it was quite uh, serendipitous, but in a wonderful way. Now, speaking to uh, Sarah, the uh, state archaeologist and obviously the volunteers here, I understand that these are quite rare sites because they're generally by, by the side of water. They can get washed away or they can yeah. get dug, dug up. It must be exciting to have this on your property. It's, it's beyond exciting. You know, having, been, having had a career in science, you know, and to have something like this, you know, you contribute certain things uh, to the, the knowledge of man. But, uh, you know, I did some things in my laboratory, but this was really like the, 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 the cherry on the top. This is really amazing, actually. I, I'm, I'm very humbled by uh, their enthusiasm, this other stuff that they have uncovered. And they're here, even though it's kind of muddy and, and all their, uh, their dedication to uh, trying to put together a really cool story. Yeah, and you were saying about the other stuff they're uncovering because, of course, this is, a, I believe, an 18th century property here yes. as well. So a yes. little bit like a layer cake. They're possibly going to find quite a few different things, possibly. Yeah, they have found some uh, antique things, some broken pottery, that sort of thing. She, uh, they have, a, I think, an 1840 or 58 penny that uh, they, they've uncovered. And uh, Sarah took it. She said she was going to uh, do something with it. I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know what else they're putting in their pockets here, you know. But I, I, I really... I, I and trust everything to these folks and all. But I haven't seen anything more about that Benny. And, um, you know, it's, a, it's one of those things that I'm really glad I can contribute to the town of East Haddam as well. I was going to say, how has it gone down with your East Haddam neighbours? Because, I mean, you are an iconic coffee shop here in East Haddam. And now suddenly this, you know, added to the mix. I, I Like I say, I'm absolutely uh, humbled by the, the, the variety of, of interesting aspects of this particular property and all. I'm, I'm, and, I, and, and I feel like I'm the caretaker for the property that this needs to be brought forward my uh, ideologies, the way I treat people. And I will tell you a little story just quickly. I've got a, an email from the, an executive uh, director of uh, mar- uh, marketing and business from the Yard Goats up in Hartford. And uh, I had been nominated as a Yard Goat kindness hero. And I'm going on the field on the 31st of May for for the work that I've done with the, the community here and on. So that's amazing. I was very, like, taken aback. And it's going to actually happen on the 31st of May, which is my ninth anniversary. So we're going up to the stadium. There's a game that night and all. How about that? Well, congratulations. And I was going to say, you mentioned nine years. Of course, next year is 10 years. I mean, can you imagine that, you know, 10 years ago when you decided to do this, all of this was going to happen? No, not at all. Not at all. You know what? I'm going to be really honest with you, Brian. When I opened the doors on the 31st of May, I had no idea what was going to happen. I had no idea what I was doing from a standpoint of business. But I just knew that 
I ha- had the stubbornness and the the, the go go get it attitude, and the, and I I failed. You know, I failed ninety five percent of the time in my scientific career. So it was like okay, but I just you just have to adjust. You can't let it let it affect you. So I um, uh, no the, to really answer you, I had no idea, and I don't know what the next ten years or nine years will bring. But it's really been a very overwhelming sort of uh, adventure. Well, Mark Thede, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting us back to Two Rousing Cats. Of course, we spoke to you in a previous podcast, and now we're seeing some of the uh, the, the digging going on. We'll be excited to see what uh, turns up. But again, congratulations Thank to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Brian. I appreciate your, your following this. And uh, uh, shout out to all your listeners to come out and see this site. Come out and see the kittens. We have our, our uh, five kittens are now here, and uh, our cat lounge will be opening up next month. And, of course, not the not forgetting the coffee and the food as well. Don't forget that. Yeah, you know, we put nine years into that. So uh, I think you won't be uh, disappointed. To protect his home and family from disaster, Steve used courage, wisdom, and his camera phone. That should do it. Way to go, Steve! By simply taking digital pictures of his family's important documents, Steve can always have them stored safely online, no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. It's mulch season, so come and visit Green Valley Tree LLC. We have a variety of colors for all your landscaping needs. Buy as much or as little as you want. Pick it up or we can deliver to your door. Call Green Valley Tree LLC for all your mulch, plant health care, and tree service needs at 860-234-4041. Or find us at 577 Boston Post Road, North Windham, Connecticut. We are family owned and fully licensed. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently, sponsored by... Every number tells a story. A true story. Connecticut by the Numbers explores breakthroughs and challenges, issues and answers. Behind the headlines, across the state, follow the numbers. Connecticut news that counts ctnumbers.news Vice President Kamala Harris gave the commencement address at the 141st Coast Guard Academy commencement exercise recently in New London. Harris made her speech in front of the 252 graduating cadets and congratulated them on their remarkable journey as well as her vision of the world we're living in today. The world you graduate into is unsettled. It is a world where long-established principles now stand on shaky ground, where the rule of law in places is strained, where rules and norms are under question. We see this in Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Harris also recognized the class of 2022 as being a generation born to the online world and acknowledged an historic first they had also achieved. Your class, of course, includes the first graduates in the history of this institution, that will have a degree in cyber systems. You came of age in a post 9-11 era defined by threats, like the climate crisis and a global health pandemic. You are familiar with a world that 
frankly feels strange and new to so many of us. This year's graduating class was made up of 39% women and 36% underrepresented minorities, with the largest number of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in academy history. Twelve of the graduates came from Connecticut, and there were also graduates from nine other countries, one of which was Ukraine. Eastern Connecticut State University has announced an historic first by signing a partnership with the Hispanic Alliance, offering scholarships to in-state students from Latino communities. Elsa Nunez is the president of Easton and said these scholarships help those students who are not the typical A and B grade achievers. So in this partnership, we welcome the students who will get the scholarship. Many of them will need extra support and we're prepared to give it to them. But we can almost guarantee that if the student does his or her part, the four-year graduation reality will be their dream come true. Claudia Melendez-Cooper is the executive director of the Hispanic Alliance of Southeastern Connecticut and gave an emotional thank you to Easton at the signing ceremony for recognizing that all students, regardless of their grade average, deserve a shot at college. For taking the risks and believing in kids that other institutions wouldn't believe in. For seeing that there's a story behind C's and D's. For seeing potential, even in C's and D's that there's opportunity, that there's a community. For the last six years, Easton has become a leader throughout New England and the United States as a haven for underdocumented students as part of its partnership as one of the first schools to accept Opportunity Scholars through the Dream.us Foundation. Students will begin enrolling in the new scholarships in the fall of 2022, and Easton will provide matching financial support for Hispanic Alliance scholars who attend the university. Students from Benny Dover Jackson Multi-Magnet Middle School in New London got to quiz local police officers over milk and cookies at their school recently. It's all part of a new outreach initiative by the New London Police Department to reconnect with younger members of the local community, as Brian Wright, chief of the NLPD, explains. The goal is to have quality time with our students, with our young people, to knock down some barriers, build some bridges, and engage in create dialogue so they feel comfortable enough to speak with us at any point in time and also so we or our officers feel comfortable engaging with our young people. They are our future so it's important that we have those relationships. 13-year-old Nevaeh Mills and 14-year-old Caden Gaskin are two students from the school council and had this to say about their experience. I think that it should be something that should happen more often, especially because kids don't really have trust in a lot of police officers, so it's good to get a good connection. Honestly, like with the things that go on on the news and what we're seeing on the news and stuff, sometimes when I see a cop, I get scared a little bit. I feel like there's some cops that try to change that and try to show people that they are not some of those bad cops. And Chris Van Vakides is the principal of Benny Dover Jackson School and said initiatives like this are important as all parts of the community continue to heal from the past few years of the COVID-19 pandemic. The pandemic has been difficult for the last couple of years and we've seen an increase in mental health concerns and issues here in the schools and asking the questions from the police they're seeing in the, on their end as well. So it's all about building supports for us, for our students and for them to build up supports for our members of our community. So what we see in our schools is definitely in line with what they're seeing in their community and I think it's best that when we build bridges, support one another and, and best serving our population. The event is a junior version of the Nationwide Coffee with Cops initiative, which allows members of a community to meet their local police force at coffee shops on an informal basis to talk. NLPD will also be starting a junior version of their Citizens Academy later this year to allow young people to find out more about the work of the local police department. And one of the largest tulip farms in New England is seeing their business bloom after just two years. 
Wicked Tulips Flower Farm in Preston is run by husband and wife team Jerome and Kerri-Anne Coman, and Kerri-Anne explained why they had expanded into Connecticut. There's more land opportunities in Connecticut. That's one of the other reasons we came, because the land, there's just more, there's more land. Beautiful, it's wide open here. We're, I mean, we're bigger here than our, our um, Rhode Island farm. The couple have two other flower farms in nearby Rhode Island, just 28 miles away from their Preston facility, which was a former dairy farm. Coman says tulips grow well in the northeast as the climate is closer to where the tulips originated from in Central Asia. The Connecticut farm has been so successful they planted double the number of tulips this year to 600,000 because of customer demand. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East this week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 